stories of mistaken identity. I'm sure that uh, no few of us have heard such stories. Perhaps even we could share a few. Sometimes they're amusing, sometimes not so much. Uh, Rico Tice, uh, one of the pastors there at All Souls in London, uh, the, one of the main guys, main players in the Christianity Explored study, tells a story in the midst of one of those studies of a, well, a mistaken identity sort of thing that he had at a luncheon counter some years ago. This was in London. He was invited to this very prim and proper sort of place, invitation only. He's standing out in this little waiting area, waiting to be uh, ushered in. There's another young man who looks vaguely familiar, but Rico can't figure out who he is, can't place him. The other guy, there's just the two of them standing there, and they stand there for easily a good five minutes or more, just kind of checking out one another, but not talking. Not talking because they, he doesn't know who he is, he doesn't know who he is. And yet, Rico has this sense that the other man is just expecting him to say something to him. But Rico, not knowing who he is, and for whatever reason, just kind of feeling kind of to himself, doesn't speak. After the other man, the young man is ushered away, it hits Rico who this was. Prince William. the future king of England. That's who he was standing right there with, had five minutes with the future king of England, didn't recognize him, didn't know who he was, and so did not relate to him in the way that he should have. We can do the very same thing with Jesus. And that, in that case, it's not just lost opportunity. It's something that can be of a tragic proportion. We fail to understand who he is and fail to relate to him in the right way. If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17, pushing on in this study in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are in the first of those gospels, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 17, picking up right where we left off last week. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13 of Matthew chapter 17. So here we go. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. 
And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, clearly, uh, the disciples were experiencing a whole lot there in just a very brief span of time. Um, confusion and terror and enlightenment, all in the span of just a few minutes. And you had some intent in mind for them. They needed all of that. They needed to go through all of that, the high, the low, the high and the low, uh, to be cast down and lifted up again, to uh, be straightened out as you were calling them to, to follow you. We need the same. We are just as much in need as they were, uh, they in that moment, before that moment, didn't realize they needed it. And, and I, I sense that for me and for everyone else here, it's really the same for all of us. We, we don't know how much we need your work in our lives and to have our eyes opened wider as to who we are. We, we do underestimate you we very much are like people who would spend a few minutes with a king and not have a clue who we're in the presence of. We need your help. Oh, we need your help. And we ask that your spirit would be moving now through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. A juxtaposition is defined by Merriam-Webster this way. The act or an instant of placing two or more things side by side often to compare or to contrast or to create an interesting effect. So, if you're working with an interior designer, they might put a couple of different seemingly, like, I don't see how those colors go together, but there's an intent, their design, it's meant to create, you know, some kind of effect to pop. It's juxtaposition. If you're reading poetry or wisdom literature, the Proverbs actually do this time and time again. You have a contrast, you have a or a comparison, something alike, something different. It's meant to make a point. If you're a storyteller, this is a, a great uh, means by which to use to, to try and drive home what, the theme of where you're going. So let's just imagine a, a story is being told, and we're, we're getting the sense of, of this drama unfolding. You have one person in a, in a good side of town and one person on a, on a bad side of town, and they're both enduring similar struggles, but they're responding in very different ways. That's juxtaposition. And, and the, the reader, the viewer, depending on the medium, is, is meant to understand and, and get the point. It's being communicated through the juxtaposition. Well, historians can do the same thing in the narratives in which they present what's happened to us in order to drive home a point as to the significance of events as they're unfolding. And Matthew's doing the very same thing here in his gospel putting before the reader a, a juxtaposition. Chapter 16, just if you can hang on with me, this is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. In chapter 16, you have Peter's confession. He comes to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's his confession, but that's immediately followed with Jesus' clarification of that very same confession Jesus pressing in, saying that, yes, I am indeed the Christ, but you have no understanding of what that means. It involves this path of suffering the cross, 
And if you're going to follow me, it, means, it will mean much the same for you. That's a crushing thing for Peter and the rest of the disciples to hear, which then sets us up for chapter 17, the juxtaposition. Here's the other side of it, the transfiguration, where, the, if you will, the curtain is pulled back, and we are enabled to see in, in Jesus in his resplendent glory as though he had been disguised in, in some way up to that point. This is the juxtaposition. On the one hand, you have Jesus as the suffering servant, and on the other hand, equally so, he is the exalted Messiah. The one who will be crushed and killed on our behalf will at the same time be raised and reign over all things. This is a juxtaposition of cosmic proportions. And we need to see here both, especially as you move from chapter 16 we're laid out flat. We're in desperate need of hearing what's coming in chapter 17. Of not one without the other. He is not just the crucified one. He is the exalted one. He's not just the exalted one. He's the crucified one. We must hear both in all the dimensions that are put here before us. What, what you see here is that through the transfiguration, Jesus reveals more of himself to us. That's what's going on. Jesus is revealing it more of himself to us, that should expand our understanding and our confidence in him. Let me just say that again. Through the transfiguration, this astonishing event, we're going to unpack and look at here in a few minutes. Through the transfiguration, Jesus is revealing it more of himself to us, and that should expand our understanding and our confidence in him. Now, how, do we, how does this expansion take place? What is, what is he revealing? And, and, and its effect and its implication, those three things, it's there in your outline. First is his identity, how this event, the transfiguration, literally and metaphorically shines light on who he is, making increasingly clear his identity. That helps us to understand more and more of his uniqueness. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, all of that together helps us to better able to hear in a new way. It gives us fresh ears to hear that call and that cost to discipleship that he has already put before us. Okay? We'll unpack it. Here we go. First one, point one, his identity. Who is this? Who is this indeed? Well, that's the question of the hour. Let's look at verse three. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. You know, sometimes you can get a pretty good read on who someone is by who's hanging around them. So who's there? Who's there? Two men. That's who appears. Two, two figures, historical figures. Moses and Elijah. Moses the great deliverer of God's people from centuries past in the context of the Exodus, the great lawgiver, that's Moses, Elijah. Elijah, another man who had faced the, the pressures and rejection of the people around him and who was one of Israel's greatest prophets, Moses and Elijah, that's who's there. And the wonder, oh, the wonder. You see that in Matthew, just in how he, he writes this there in verse 3, and behold, you see that twice in the English in this flow of this passage, and behold, it's actually three times in the Greek it comes out, and behold, helping us to see that this is not ordinary. 
of course, it's not ordinary for us. It wasn't ordinary for them either. It was extraordinary, supernatural. Think with me for a moment. Moses lived in the 15th century B.C. Elijah, his ministry takes place in the 9th century B.C., and yet there they are. This is, not, this is a little unusual. This is extraordinary. The wonder and behold, Matthew wants us to grapple with that. Now, why are they there? And specifically, of all the figures in Old Testament history, why these two? Right? I mean, why not Abraham? Why not Noah? Why not David? Why not Isaiah? Why not Jeremiah? Why not Baruch? He never gets any press. I mean, why, why these Two, why Moses and Elijah? Moses, the moral law, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, all of that that came th comes through him. Elijah, all the promises, all the predictions, all of that. As great a ministry and as significant as these men were, their role was ultimately but to point. Their ministry, their role in the flow of, again, not, and I'm not dismissing them by any stretch. They're significant in their time and in their place in the flow of events, but their place was to prepare. Their, their, their lives and labors have no meaning outside of the one to whom they're appointing, and that is the life and labor of Jesus. Their role was to prepare his role, he is the culmination of everything they were about. All the promises, all the predictions, all the prophecies, him. Some have been fulfilled and accomplished, some have yet to be. Or just specific, speaking specifically, get that out, speaking specifically of the moral law. So with God's commands, with his statutes, what do you have? You have, yes, an expression of his character, it's who he is. You also have his purpose and his design for how he has intended us for us, for us to live according to our design and our makeup and how he intended us for things to go, right? You know what else you have with that? With his, his commands and his statutes, his law, an expression of his holiness. And as we are, have to reckon with our abject, utter, complete failure to walk in his ways, we are struck then with his, our sinfulness, which therein points us to our need for Jesus his work of forgiveness, his work of transformation in our lives. You see, it all culminates in him. It all culminates in him. Oh, uh, Moses, Elijah, great, significant, but they play supporting roles ultimately in the unfolding drama. Jesus is who the story is about. Everything pivots on him and nothing makes sense outside of him. That's who's standing there. That's who this is. That's identity. Star Wars. So with all the prequels, all the sequels, and all the standalone stories, you can easily get lost in this, but it's the same thing there. In the beginning, with the original six, it was ultimately about who. It was not ultimately about Han Solo or Luke or Leia. The story, the original six, was about what? The redemption of Anakin Skywalker. And you don't understand anything about Star Wars, the first six movies. I'm not talking about all the ones that have come since. You don't understand anything about those six unless you understand that. Now, all those films stand alone. 
and they're entertaining, and they're fun, and the characters are great, but in order to understand the whole thing, you've got to, or even to understand the, the individual parts rightly, you have to understand the whole picture. It's the full picture, the full picture. Well, I, I'm just saying it's something in a, in a, to a degree like that with, with Jesus here. This is a full picture of who he is as the culmination of everything that has come before and, and ever will after. That's who Jesus is. That fuller picture, that fuller understanding of who he is fuels our worship and increases our wonder. And if I can flip that to the negative side, anything that takes away from that robs us of that wonder and worship. Anything that compromises that fuller picture of Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that has come before cheapens our worship and our wonder, which is why... It is why there's such terrible trouble today with certain Bible teachers who are telling us we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. They are out there. They've been out there from a long, long time. And I'm not going to name names. That's a terrible idea to unhitch ourselves. That's, that's like the lumberjack sitting on the branch up in the tree that he is sawing off. Right, I understand that we can't understand the Old Testament without the New. I got that. But you know what else? You can't understand the New without the Old. Because Jesus is who? The greater Moses. Jesus is who? The greater Elijah. If you don't understand who Moses and Elijah are, your view of Jesus has just been cheapened. You have a lesser Jesus because you've unhitched yourself. In this transfiguration, Jesus is revealing to us more of himself, his identity, in that, as we hear that, it expands our understanding of who he is and should increase our confidence in him, which takes us to the second point. Not just his, his identity, but his uniqueness. Not just who he is, but how he stands and compares with all who've come before the great figures or, in, you know, or you know, even after. So, how does he compare? Let's pick up where we left off, verses 4 through 8. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, and by the way, do you love this, how Peter is just from heaven itself, interrupted. It's as though what you just said doesn't even deserve a response. And I'm just going to speak. That's basically what's happening here. So, okay, speaking of interruptions, I interrupted myself. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Okay, let's talk about Peter's notion here, this brilliant idea he has. Now, on the one hand, he's got it right. It's an incredible privilege that they have of being present and observing what's going on. That's, I mean, wow. However, he puts his foot right in his mouth 
immediately thereafter in showing he thinks that this is a great opportunity to show hospitality. Now, what's going on here? Why is Peter, where has he fallen here in his understanding? He's, he's fallen in that, and at least two ways. One, he's still not hearing Jesus. He's not reckoning with Jesus, what Jesus had just said, that he's going to Jerusalem. He's not staying put. This is not a time to institutionalize and build things. He's going to Jerusalem, Peter. And as though that's not enough, it seems that also what Peter's doing here is that he seems to think that with Moses and Elijah and Jesus here together, oh, wow, Jesus has been elevated to their stature. That's not it at all, Pete. Um, it's, the confusion is just rain, raging here. Uh, it, and I'm not going to get into verses um, 9 and following, but I'll just simply say that's what's happening there. The confusion about how uh, John the Baptist serves as this other Elijah-like figure and, and how that works, and they don't understand the timetable and how the restoration is coming and all of that. And into, I'll just put it this way, um, into the fog of all that confusion speaks the Father from this cloud. And the cloud is a symbol, a physical manifestation of God the Father's presence right there. You think of how many times in the Old Testament you have a cloud and a mountain, and it's God himself who is present, and he is speaking. What do they hear? What do these men hear? They hear this glorious affirmation from the Father of the Son. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. It's exactly the same words that were spoken at his baptism before. Exactly, word for word. And with that affirmation, though, also comes an injunction, a command, an imperative. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What? Listen to him. You're, the implication being what? You have not been. <laughs> Listen to him, especially in the hard things he is saying to you right now about the path he will have to walk, and by extension, that you will too. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's what they hear. Now, what do they see? Verse 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Um, Matthew's doing all he can here linguistically to press on us that it is Jesus alone that they saw. That, that Jesus eclipses all others. That when Jesus is present, everything and everyone else recedes to the background. Matthew's doing all he can in the way he words this to tell us Jesus has no rivals. He has no rivals. Or if I can put it this way, in order for us to see clearly anything, in order for us to see clearly, in order for us to see rightly, we have to see him chiefly, such as his uniqueness, such as his uniqueness. Now, I know that stands uh, in violation. It stands completely in, con in contrast to our postmodern sensibilities because to speak of Jesus's 
uniqueness in this way? Well, oh my goodness, that sounds so narrow. That sounds so exclusive. The question you might be asking, where I know you're hearing being asked is, okay, I, okay, fine, I hear what you're saying about your Jesus, but what about Buddha? What about Muhammad? This, you sound so narrow, you sound so exclusive. How can you speak this way? Wouldn't it be far better, and wouldn't things in this world be far better if we could adopt the mountain path image, right? Where truth, God himself in some manifestation is at the top of the mountain, and all these paths are leading up there, and every path, by the way, is equally valid because they get you to the same place. Isn't that the better way to go? No. No. Now, I, I, we have to grant this much, that that mountain path image does do justice to the diversity of the world religions and the sincerity of many of its adherents. But in order to have that, hold to that position in any consistent way, I don't think we realize what you have to swallow. You have to be willing, you have to be willing to alter the fundamental teachings of the founders of every one of those faiths in order to make that work. You have to be willing to dismiss and disrespect millions of its adherents in order to say they're all the same. You have to be willing to put yourself on a pedestal of greater enlightenment. I know better than you all because I can see what you can't. And then pushing even further, logically, you're not even thinking a moment about all the gross contradictions and the most basic tenets of those faiths. Will it work? Sounds nice. No, it won't. Jesus is unique. He stands alone. D.A. Carson writes, it's one of, your, one of your quotes and notes there. I think it's um, towards the bottom. Yeah, the last quotes, quoting your quotes and notes is what Carson writes. Jesus brooks no rivals. There have been, there are many religious leaders in an age of postmodern sensibilities and deep cultural commitment to philosophical pluralism. It is desperately easy to relativize Jesus in countless ways, but there's only one person of whom it can be said that he made us and then became one of us, that he is the Lord of glory and a human being, that he died in ignominy and shame on the odious cross, yet is now seated on the right hand of the majesty on high, having returned to the glory that he shared with the Father before the world began. Such is the uniqueness of Jesus. He stands apart unlike any other such as his person, such as his place, such as his position, such as who he, he is. And his transfiguration helps us to see that. And it enlarges our understanding of who he is, and therein should also enlarge our, our confidence in him because of who he is. Which then takes us finally to the third point. Because not only are we seeing here in Matthew 17... In the transfiguration, his identity made clearer, 
and his uniqueness set forth in, in blazing brilliance. But we also therein are able to now hear that call to discipleship and the cost of discipleship in a fresh way. Because when we hear that, those words, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, if we're honest, there's a kickback or a pushback question that goes on in our heads, and it's, can I take that seriously? And, and who are you to say such things and demand such things? Well, now we know who it is that's saying such things and demanding such things. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. We haven't gone back to that. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Can we take this call seriously? Matthew intends for us to see the connection, the connection of what we're reading here in Matthew 17 to what, he has, what has just transpired in Matthew 16. Now, we don't know the place. The place where all this happened is actually uncertain, likely Mount Hermon, a few miles to the north, um, Standing at 9,166 feet, it's a high mountain, it's in the range, the area of Caesarea Philippi, where everything in Matthew's, well, the last part of Matthew 16 was taking place. So that's likely the place. The main thing is not the place, but, but the timing. Matthew wants us to understand the timing, because what does he say? He says, after six days, after six days from what? From what just happened? He wants us to see the connection temporally and topically, if you will, that what just happened was, again, Peter's confession, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right, Peter, and I'm going to die, and then I'll be raised, and you, in following me, are going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. This, that whole exchange was like a roller coaster that left them flat on the ground. And Jesus is now reaching down, if you will, and picking them up and helping them to understand who this really is that has put this call and this cost. Do you understand really that the, who the transfiguration is for? It's not for Jesus. He doesn't need it. It's not for Moses or Elijah. They don't need it. It's for the disciples. Those three and everyone that they've told, which, by the way, includes us. That's who the transfiguration is for, that we might see, that we might know who he is. This metamorphosis, metamorpho, is the word that we translate transfiguration. Oh, what does that sound like? Metamorphosis. You, you have... The, 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 Jesus' face and his clothing transformed in the deepest way, blazing, bright, shining with brilliance. It's somewhat reminiscent. I'll explain why I say somewhat. It's somewhat reminiscent centuries before of Moses' experience as he's coming down Mount Sinai after coming into contact with the glory of the living God and his face is shining with the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God. But here's the contrast. Jesus 
doesn't reflect glory. He produces glory. The difference in the light is like the difference of the light of the sun and the light of the moon. That's who they're seeing here. They are seeing in a, in a clear-eyed sort of way what we read earlier from Revelation 4, or we could read from Daniel 7, or Revelation 5, sorry, or Revelation 4, or it just who he is, or Revelation 1. Oh, my goodness, it's all, you know, it's so many places that you find in the Scriptures where the curtain is pulled back. They are getting a glimpse of the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's what they're, who they're seeing. They're getting a foretaste or a foresight, if you will, of him in his exalted glory before that exaltation, the ascension, will come. So back to the question, can we take this call seriously? Well, the answer has to be, given his authority and his power, given who he is, we have to. And we can. It's, it's both. We, we have to in terms of like an imperative. And we can in the sense of ability, really to kind of put our heart there. Not just our, our mind there, but our heart there as well. Given who this is and how he has revealed him. So on the one hand, we, you simply cannot ignore. A sane man or woman cannot ignore his power and authority without just committing the ultimate act of presumption and foolishness and arrogance. But at the same time, we should not miss the fact, what he, part of what he says is, follow me. Now, what is implied when he says, follow me? Yes, the path itself, the suffering and the sacrifice. But what else? His presence Follow me. Walk behind me. Walk as I go with you. That is the Emmanuel promise that we hear time and time and time again. It's, it's, it's like what I read earlier from Ortberg, the little boy there on the shore. This is how he's able to be out and do what he does because who he knows is with him. So it's, it's we, we have to, but we're unable to. With the transfiguration, again, we get this clearer sense of who it is that's setting forth this call and the cost to discipleship. So let me just, you know, yoke all this together. So chapter 16, we read, verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now skip down to chapter 17. Who is it that said that? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is his call and his glory. And the glorious one is who extends the call. And that therein expands our understanding of who he is and should increase our confidence as we follow him. Now, back to this idea of juxtaposition. This is where we start. This is where we're going to end. None of this should surprise us, the complexity of this, the multidimensionality of Jesus. He's not just this, but he's that. He's not just that, but he's 
he's this. I mean, we're told elsewhere in the scripture that Jesus was present and an active agent at creation itself. And we're learning more and more. I mean, the, the gift that we have from science and what good scientists are doing in their, in, in their work on all different fields, helping us to understand the complexity of what it is that he has made, intelligent design, it's astonishing. But it's not just the complexity, it's the immensity. That's where I want to go here for a second. The immensity of what it is that he has made. I'll read you this quote from a British astronomer, Peter Edwards. It's actually from a YouTube clip, and I've got the transcript from some of what he said. You will never, ever, ever get your head around how big the universe is. It is just enormous. There's no way, I think, that the human mind can comprehend the true immensity of the universe. We're happy with the size of an elephant or the size of a tree or maybe even the size of a cathedral. But if we go beyond that, our brains just start to run out of gas. We pointed the Hubble telescope at what appeared to be a very ordinary patch of the night sky. If you imagine holding up your finger, now just imagine doing this, holding up your finger with a grain of sand on it and looking at the patch of sky, that grain of sand blocks out. You following that? That's the field that the Hubble telescope zoomed into. What the telescope saw was incredible. There are 10,000 galaxies in a patch of sky the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. If this tiny patch of sky is like every other, then we could calculate how many galaxies are out there. The visible universe contains about 100 billion galaxies. Each of those galaxies contains around 100 billion stars. That means the visible universe contains something like 10,000 million, million, million stars. That means there are more stars in the visible universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. No wonder we keep discovering new things. And we will continue to. Now, here's where I'm going with this. If that's true, big as this is, if that's true of the finite universe, in terms of our being surprised at what we're finding, how much more so the one who made it, the infinite creator who knows no bounds, no bounds whatsoever. It shouldn't surprise us that we find the, the complexity, the multidimensionality of besides which we are huh, dots on a page. It's no wonder then that we find that he is at somehow, at the same time, the suffering servant and the exalted Messiah. And it is that Jesus who calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him in all the wonder of who he is, in the immensity of who he is. And that's what we're getting a taste of with the transfiguration, the awesomeness, the wonder of Jesus which as we gaze into that, expands our understanding and should grow our confidence in him. 
Let's pray together. Who is this? That's what we sang a few moments ago. Who is this? And surely the disciples, well, we know on several occasions we have it recorded for us in the scriptures. Lord, that's exactly what they were asking of you. Who is this? And we would do well this day to ask the very same question. You are the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. May that settle in. You are unique, truly beyond comparison. All similarities that we would find to any and every other faith and their teachings are but echoes, almost as though something has been overheard from the truth. May we engage this watching, listening world with that. The call to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow you comes from the cosmic king himself. We are obligated and privileged to follow you. May we truly hear and may we deeply respond. In your name we pray.